you know, when I think of like my life here and who I am as a person, it's impossible to not think about my family's journey and struggle and challenge and eventually uh, success, right? But uh, I think that's their story is a very American story. And what I've learned, especially as I've gotten older, is, um, you know, the American dream is what people come to the United States for. Um, and I think North America, broadly speaking, have those flavors. But, uh, you know, the American dream actually isn't for them. The American dream is the opportunity for their children to yes. have opportunity, not them, which is really quite, if you think about it, quite tragic because they're the ones doing all the work, right? And I, and I, have, I struggle, honestly, to reconcile that knowledge, knowing what they had to go through in the United States in 1981, what they had to do to really have a stronger command of the English language, what it was like to start a small business in Southern California as, as landscapers and gardeners. Welcome to Moments with Chrissy. Here we are again in this episode where we are able to welcome another wonderful guest speaker. So just a quick intro, our guest speaker today is a talented, passionate, dedicated, and reputable individual and spirited human being just from the first conversation that I've had with him. And he's now ready to share his experiences to help other people thrive. Jeff, it's his name, had a career at the highest level of public policy and politics at the state, federal, and international levels. A recognized thought leader in political advocacy and representation, his analysis has been featured in Political Magazine, New York Times, USA Today, The Washington Post, Fox News, and many more newspapers across 30 states in the USA. Jeff is currently an executive leader in technology where he is the VP of public policy and external affairs in a fintech startup, working to give renters everywhere greater financial freedom through affordable insurance options. Previously, he did work in a big digital tech company and served as the deputy cabinet secretary for California Governor Jerry Brown. In this episode, we'll be talking about his experiences working in different industries. As you've noticed, he did leap from the public sector into the tech sector, his life and experiences as an Asian American global citizen, and his advocacy against anti-Asian hate crimes. I'm super excited for this. So let us welcome Jeff in this conversation. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Chrissy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm so glad that we got to connect. I'm so glad that we were able to actually have that conversation and start talking about topics that truly matter. So super happy to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I mean, Washington, D.C. is a, a rainy day. Um, yeah. You know, the saying in D.C. is you wait long enough, you'll get all the seasons. So I don't know how, how the weather is in Canada right now, but uh, hopefully, hopefully it isn't as tumultuous. Um, yeah, it's in the East Coast, it's a bit moody. So we're getting not, not as moody as I expected to be, just rain and shine here and there, very spotty, but all is good. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jeff, before we jump into the deeper topics, which I, you know, that's something I'm really excited to dive into, like, tell me about anti-Asian um, hate crimes, and but let's ease into it. And I do want our, you know, listeners to get to know you better. 
So I'll just go over some questions because I probably don't know the answers to it as well. So just making sure, are you ready for those? I'm questions? ready as all of <laughs> Okay, nothing too crazy, don't worry. Um, so my first question is, do you favor the rain or snow better? Well, as a Californian, it's definitely neither. Uh, we're not equipped for uh, inclement weather of any type. But I would say, given that California has had a historic drought and has massive fires, I'm going to go with rain. I would pick rain. rain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can't complain. Yeah, it's, at least you're not freezing, right? That's right. <laughs> okay. Next question is... Um, Probably one of the questions I do like asking even just my friends is, what is your favorite meal of the day and why? Oh my, <laughs> my favorite meal of the day is any meal I can get a hold of. So big, <laughs> right? I mean, um, you know, one of my challenges, you know, in my day job is I'm generally booked straight through from about 10 to 4.15. And yeah. so what I, what I find really challenging is we do meetings at half hour blocks or longer. We really should be doing meetings in 20 to 25 minute blocks. So then you have a time to like eat or walk around or I don't know, process what you just talked about. Because the meetings, um, it's important to allow other people to do the work, but the work has to be done out of the meeting, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for me, I would say any meal, uh, but to be honest, lately, I'm loving dinner because dinner means I can get time with the family. It yeah. means, that, um, you know, it means that um, I'm, I know I've eaten before I'm taking on the second shift, right, which is generally, you know, from about 730 to question mark, right? Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a one year old. And so the one year old dictates the schedule. And Thankfully, she's only, uh, you know, she's only still figuring out the world here, but she's out foxy many times. So sometimes we'll make faces at each other and, and uh, enjoy whatever meal we're getting. That's probably the highlight. Uh, that makes sense. Because, yeah, because breakfast, everyone wakes up at different times and lunches, as you mentioned, it's like you don't even know where to fit that in. So that makes sense. Dinner. Usually, yeah, usually lunch is a drive-by, you know, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you're grabbing at like snacks, you know, I mean, whatever you can grab. Yeah. And then you eat by your, by your screen too, because you're mm -hmm. like, okay, my next meeting is coming up in five minutes, but I have to yeah. answer this email. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. My next question is 2020 or 2021? Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm either. Uh, if you asked me in July, I would have said 2021 by a lot, right? Now, I, I think I'm still going to say 2021. I think yeah. I think 2020 was really, really hard for people. Yeah. Um, well, I, I unfortunately lost, you know, quite a bit of friends this year, um, this year and last year. Um, and not, some of it's not COVID, not just COVID related. Some have been COVID related. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, I can say, you know, just three months ago, I, you know, we had a, a dog and that we had to put the dog down, you know, so that was pretty rough. Like, so I would say 2021, like just objectively speaking is better because I think at some point we're going to be moving in some direction. Yes. There's been vaccinations, right. And I think, um, I think in some parts of the world, there'll be some progress. 2020, I think everyone was so uncertain about things, right? And just looking back and the loss and misery was pretty holistic versus here, it's more patchwork and maybe by choice to be fair. So I would say 2021 now, subjectively, I mean, they're both pretty awful. Yeah, no, I know. I, I definitely agree with that. It's like at this stage, hopefully we are healing as 
as a world, as you know, as a whole. Um, and as you've mentioned, we are moving towards the direction versus 2020. It's like a drastic, it was just like a switch where everything just changed within a, such a short span of time. So fingers crossed with everyone. And I'm sorry you had to put down your dog. Hopefully he um, or it's in a, in a, it's not suffering anymore. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the two things you learn is, is the dog's lifespan is so short. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, um, you know, there's a humanity part to it. I think at some point for us, at least recognizing that the quality of life was really deteriorating, you have to make that call, but it's amazing uh, how many notes I received from people about that news. I got more notes about uh, the dog than I did the birth of my child. So I think it's sort of the case that uh, we do love animals more than people, 100%. Um, So it was a good perspective. Also, every, you know, many, many humans have had a pet they've had to lose, right? So it is sort of a shared experience of both the highs and then sort of the tragic inevitable low that comes with that. Um, So I think that's sort of a, that's an interesting bonding um, moment for people. Yeah. yeah no that's that's good it's good that you have that support to show you hey you know what there's more love out here don't worry yeah. <laughs> that's great all right so my next question is um and i guess you did answer this already is what is your typical routine after what's the first thing that you do right after work wait after work or before work after work oh my gosh well the first thing as i the first thing i will probably well it depends which shift. Um, I will, you know, I try to carve out um, one phone call a day with a friend. Um, so I do one phone call in the morning with a friend I haven't talked to in a while. I'll just scroll through at random. And then the second phone call in the evening is usually someone who ha- it's their birthday. So I'll try to call them on their birthday, right? I try to do that because I think the pandemic has taught me and I think many others the the value of relationships. And I would say the value of relationships you want, you should be investing more in versus the relationships that you sort of feel like you're stuck with. So I'm sure many folks, you know, listening to this have had some revelations about their life. And one of the ones for me was certainly about the importance of being a better friend, recognizing that we have so many folks who've experienced hardship and loss and challenge. And I think also a grander question of what is important in their life and what are they going to do about it? Yeah, no, I I love that. I think definitely the pandemic taught, even this is a conversation that I've had with family and friends where the pandemic has really taught us what truly mattered and how to nurture those relationships. Because at the end of the day, it's always about the people around you, right? Totally. So, yeah, that's cool. That's really, I hope everyone gets to do that where you can just call a friend whose birthday coming up, just like, it's nice. It's a nice thing to do. And well, you'd be surprised though. I mean, who answers phone calls these days? No. So that's kind of, you know, I, you know, I realized I'd probably be more successful if I just texted them real quick, but there's something about getting the phone call. It's funny. I think we're at a point now where if you get a phone call from a friend you haven't heard from in a while, you think it's bad news. Yeah. So I, I at least want to have some element of positive surprise with that. Yeah. You know? um, but yeah. yeah, I'd say that. That's true. Everything's on the calendar right now. It's like, let me book you in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all right. Um, my last question is, and this is a question that I also find very wholesome, is 
What is your spirit animal? Uh, my spirit animal is a puffin. Um, so, you know, sort of like a penguin, but happier to be here. Rainbow beak and, you know, not really particularly talented at anything per se, but uh, but certainly has a lot of will for an animal that doesn't have knees and, uh, you know, probably doesn't do a great job at fishing. But there's just something so something so positive about a puffin, you know, it's a fair, it can be a fairly social bird and it lives through really tough circumstances, but somehow soldiers on. I think that's probably a good allegory for COVID-19 times. Yeah, for sure. And that's something we'll learn more about you in this. <laughs> I'm yeah. pretty sure. All right, Jeff. So we've done the ice breaking part. Hopefully that wasn't too much. That was um, wonderful. That was wonderful. Okay, awesome. That's good to know. Um, so one question that I do like to uh, bring into the the episode as well is before we learn more about your story is I like asking this question. So who who is Jeff? If if a stranger passes by and taps you on the shoulder and mm -hmm. asks you, hey, who are you? Or who are you? Tell me more about you. Yeah. <laughs> That's, let me tell you that I think is the hardest question I can think of. But, you know, I think when you, when I try to describe myself, I usually start with who got me here, right? Which is yes. my family and parents. So, you know, if I want to tell you more about me, you need to know more about my family. So my parents uh, originally were from Vietnam mm -hmm. and they were, you know, multi-generation rice farmers. And then after the fall of Saigon in April 75, um, escaped on a raft and got picked up by the Thai Navy and bounced around to multiple refugee camps for six years before landing in California, 1981. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when I think of like my life here and who I am as a person, it's impossible to not think about my family's journey and struggle and challenge and eventually uh, success, right? But uh, I think that's their story is a very American story. And what I've learned, especially as I've gotten older, is, um, you know, the American dream is what people come to the United States for. Um, and I think North America, broadly speaking, have those flavors. But, uh, you know, the American dream actually isn't for them. The American dream is the opportunity for their children to yes. have opportunity, not them, which is really quite, if you think about it, quite tragic, because they're the ones doing all the Right. And I and I have I struggle, honestly, to reconcile that knowledge, knowing what they had to go through in the United States in 1981, what they had to do to really have a stronger command of the English language, what it was like to start a small business in Southern California as, as landscapers and gardeners, what it was like for them to uproot their entire California life network to move to Southern Georgia to run a really notable free range organic chicken farm, right? Like, why would you do all this stuff? And, and they'll tell you plainly to provide the means and opportunity for myself and my middle brother and my youngest sister, right? So really like my story is a story of chance, just the odds of them landing here were pretty low, right? Uh, it's a story of really luck. <laughs> If you think about it, right? Um, you know, there's so much variables that went into. And also it's an opportunity to highlight the importance that many immigrant families have in North America, broadly speaking, which is a lot of grit. And I want to think that my experiences were 
you know, anchored by that sacrifice and knowing that, right? So I've always operated from a perspective of whatever I was going to do was going to have a collective good in some way, right? And that's sort of how I fell into the life I had, right? Which is a life that has veered between really three chapters, right? A chapter of sort of an international life, which we can talk about, a chapter, uh, you know, that had an experience in, in domestic politics, uh, both at state and federal levels. And then now in this chapter I have, which is basically in the technology and innovation space, focused on improving public policy to help the most marginalized and the most vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So those are those three phases that all weave through the same theme, which is, you know, about um, developing leadership and opportunities to uplevel other people's livelihoods and opportunities to succeed. That's really the point. It's not about, um, you know, you don't get the same outcome, but you should have, you should have a fair shake and a fair chance at a time where I think it's harder and harder for folks to embrace that, especially um, during this pandemic, which has exasperated uh, inequity as a whole. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things in there I really want to break down. And I love how you were able to introduce your family as the core, you know, your parents as the core people who really made you who you are. Um, and I want to dig further into that. So when you mentioned about the story of them coming into California and them figuring out how life is networking and even now having their own business, what stories really stood out for you growing up? Like for you, what were the main highlights? What were the things that you saw in your parents that you were like, wow? Well, um, you know, one of the tragedies of the American dream and that pursuit is the sacrifice. And so uh, I did not honestly see my family very much. Um, generally speaking, I heard the engine of the truck start around 5 a.m. And I heard the engine of the car stop around that was generally their day. So 5 a.m. to midnight, you know, you do the math, that's about a 17-hour day. Um, you know, they were working as a small business in a pretty affluent part of Southern California, like just one hour south of Los Angeles and one hour north of San Diego in a county called Orange County. And, uh, you know, they picked living there for one reason, which was the access to, um, you know, some of the more positive public education experiences for us, right? So they purposely made a decision to work in a place that had services and had a market for them, but also to give us the opportunity. But to be honest, the first lesson is, is, about, is about sort of making hard trade-offs, which was for us to have opportunity, that meant they couldn't spend time with us. And that was a very hard, I think, lesson. And when you're growing up, you're kind of resentful about it, right? Because, you know, they missed my tennis matches, they missed my violin recitals, they missed my baseball games, they missed, they actually missed a lot of things, you know, they never went to a parent-teacher conference, they never went to, um, you know, a elementary school or middle school graduation, right, if you think about it, you're sort of, you see all the other parents, but you don't see your parents, it makes you wonder, like, you know, is there something wrong with me? And as you get older, then you realize, oh, that's because they were working so gosh darn hard. And actually part of their work ethic, I think, encouraged me to try to help them out. So on the weekends, some, my first job was mowing lawns. So the second lesson was um, learning manual labor at an early age. Uh, I don't say that in a legal, in a legal way, but I say that <laughs> obviously as a small business proprietor. Yeah. 
But um, the second lesson was that people who are considered to help are treated very differently. And so I learned very quickly that when you mow people's lawns, people treat you generally like crap. And so I think it gives you an important empathy for others and sort of serve key services, right? That was a, a very important lesson for me. And the third thing, uh, which I think was so helpful, um, you know, was understanding that your peers and your, and your friends um, all go through challenges and struggles, um, but they don't talk about them. Um, you know, there was a wave of friends who, you know, families went through divorces and, um, you know, makes you sort of try to understand that even though they had a lot of really interesting um, means and access and, you know, a pretty cool yard and all these things you think of as a kid, uh, deep down, you know, people are hurting still too. So it gives you sort of this perspective that the grass is always greener, but sometimes the lawn isn't exactly where you'd want to be. Yes. Uh, those were sort of the three lessons from childhood that I thought were pretty representative to how I sort of approached people, you know, service and, and really about making a difference later. Yeah. And how, how has those lessons impacted the way you made decisions in your life? Uh, um, you know, I think the first one was a feeling like I couldn't waste this. Yeah. Right. Um, when I started traveling and working overseas, I had a, you know, I had a couple jobs at the State Department or, you know, Ministry of Foreign Affairs right here in, in the United States. And uh, my parents' first reaction was, you know, son, we've come, you know, we came across the ocean on a boat. So you didn't have to go to poor places. Uh, and because I was assigned to really challenging environments and I ended up working, you know, in the former Soviet Union and, you know, doing some experiences in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And then later, uh, you know, two tourists avoiding, you know, international forces in Afghanistan. And my parents were just kept asking me, like, why on earth are you doing this? Is this a phase, right? And it's like, no, like, I felt, you know, I felt as an American, particularly, this sense of ownership to that mantle. And I think also a sense of obligation yeah. to try to provide um, in a way that somehow I was afforded. Yeah. So I've always felt like I was trying to pay it back in some ways. Uh, wasn't always the way I thought it would be, if I were to be honest. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, I think that there was such a big world. And when I was a little boy, I wanted to be an astronaut and, you know, went to space camp and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and realized pretty early on, there was no way I was ever going to fly. I had terrible vision. I had flat feet. I was terrible at math, despite the Asian stereotype that you and I have talked about. Um but I realized I was less interested in space, really, and more interested about exploration. And so, you know, my life took me to about 85 countries around the world. And it gave me tremendous perspective on, you know, some things are the same, right? Which is really, I think, three rules. One, um, people are generally family-centered first. Um, two, um, you can find beauty pretty much everywhere in its own special way. And three, without fail, the people who have the least always give the most. Yeah. And I think that um, reminded me coming from, you know, one of the most powerful countries in the history of earth, um, just what responsibility that means, um, the challenges that are afforded to that. Uh, but, you know, you sort of develop more of an appreciation for the values and the life you had. It also makes you appreciate home more. So the more I traveled, the more I missed home. And it wasn't because I missed like awesome Vietnamese food or awesome Mexican food yeah. right in California. But it was also the sense of missing that natural translation, you know? 
you know, when you're in your home country, your hometown, there's sort of a way of speaking or, you know, there isn't that same internal abacus of trying to sort of explain to somebody a context. It's just natural. And I think over time, when you do that a lot, you kind of lose yourself a little. And so there was a bit of a longing from that life to return. Uh, and that's why I know, honestly, fundamentally, I was in Afghanistan. This was in April of 2011. And I was coming back and I honestly asked myself, what was I giving back like within the United States? And that's sort of how I um, ended up venturing into politics later, which we definitely should talk about. But, you know, wanted to sort of answer your question holistically. I think those experiences from my childhood definitely affected my curiosity with the world and frankly, um, an interest in sort of, um, you know, trying to serve others, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for you growing up, were you, if you, it seems like right now I sense a lot of appreciation, gratefulness, just like so much lightness in the way you approach these parts of chapters of journeys in your life. Has that always been something that you grew up with or did you find that you, it, there was a place and time that you had to find this out yourself the hard way over? Um, you know, I've always had an appreciation. I think part of the reason why I had an appreciation was also because I was a late bloomer. So, mm-hmm. you know, I had many friends and peers that I would describe as uh, identified talent early. And I was not in that bucket, I, you know, whether it was in sports or in intellectual pursuits or music, I was never a standout, you know, and even, even from a personality standpoint, I, I really didn't do so well to stand out. Now, some of that, when I reflect, is largely by Asian heritage, right? The sense, and I know we've talked about this and it's really important to really shed light to, but, you know, being Asian American, you know, in North America, broadly speaking, um, you are taught very early to be grateful for where you are and what you're doing, because generally your families come from some sort of significant oppression. And I would say just as important to highlight some sort of tragic trauma that really was unresolved, right? My parents escaped a country that no longer exists, really, the one that they knew versus the one they would return to every few years, right? That sort of loss is a hard thing to, to, to really understand. And then entering a, a country in a chapter in your life that doesn't truly embrace you in the same way, that's, I think, really hard. Mm-hmm. And the other point of view is, is I think, um, you're told not to rock the boat. Because yeah. if you rock the boat, that means you're a target. And then if you're a target, that's bad, right? Uh, and remember, they came from a country that they lost everything because of a big government chasing them, right? So you got to think of it that way. So I was taught early, like blend in, don't talk much. Don't, you know, don't stand out too much. Like just do your work and put your head down and then you'll be recognized. And if you zoom now to 2021, that's totally not true at all. Right. I mean, in fact, it's a disservice. And it's not that I, um, I don't fault my family for thinking that way. That was their survival path. But for you and me and others listening here, it really is about something bigger, which is, that you can, you can do more, you can make a bigger difference, and you can truly embrace who you, like you can embrace your true powers if you embrace who you really are. And I grew up, when I grew up, right, I was as apple pie as you can get, right? I loved baseball, I loved apple pie, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, go in the car and cruise around, like, you know, I had a, 
typical suburban childhood. I, I had the Boy Scouts. I did all the things you would think. Yeah. I still didn't fit in. And it wasn't until much later and I realized like, what's wrong with me, right? Um, and that was hard, but it wasn't until like, actually, you know, frankly, till last year. So not till 2020 that I started, you know, acknowledging my, my own Asian heritage, which, you know, I spent my whole life running away from, largely because I didn't think I could be successful if I, if I owned that. I, I would brush off the casual everyday racism, right? I would acknowledge that maybe I didn't look like a leader. Um, and above all, um, I recognized that I was maybe just a worker bee, but I kept feeling like I was living a lie, that I was running into this, um, this brick wall within myself. Like I somehow was shackling myself for reasons I couldn't understand, right? Um, and I'll, I'll share a story, right, which I think turned it around for me, like the turning point for when I decided I would speak like I am with you now, which being in politics, I'll just be honest with you, you'd rather light your hair on fire than speak to podcasters or to yeah. the media. You would, it's the last thing you should do because it's all about staying in your ivory tower and your Eiffel tower, right? It's about just focusing on the work and not dealing with the people, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, in last March, um, this was March of 2020. So this was just before the pandemic really sunk in. Um, I was on a trip uh, back to California. I had a quick meeting in Reno, Nevada. I was rushing back. Uh, I'm in suit and tie, right? So just picture like business travel, right? And I'm walking through past security. And this woman shows up. She looks me right in the face. She hawks a giant loogie right down the right side of the cheek. And it's just dripping down my face. You know, sort of like what you picture, like, um, you know, like an, a runny egg. And my first reaction, because it's not the first time it's happened to me, unfortunately, my first reaction was to tell a joke. Because again, when you're, it's all about blending in. So I told a joke, I said, gosh, I should have brought my umbrella if I knew it was going to rain today. And um, that was usually the key where if people would laugh and then we'd all move on. But actually what ended up happening is about a dozen people looking around, looked at me, went, went along with their lives. It's as if it never happened. It didn't matter. And that I didn't matter. And, you know, <laughs> so much of that is contrary to what society teaches us, which is like, oh, Asians are model minority. They're the best minority, yeah. um, you know, which obviously is a total lie, right? If you look at the data that, that, that uh, if you actually take a serious inspection of that, which we can talk about, um, that's obviously absurd. But um, you go from being the model minority to being someone that can be spit on in, in an airport in front of people and then not matter at all. So you're like your standing as a citizen, your standing as a human being is arbitrary and conditional yeah. and decided by other people. And it's not the spitting on part that is, that's not what turned me. What turned me and what, what gave me nightmares for a while was seeing all the people pretend it never happened. Yeah. Sort of that, and that silence is the complicity, right? I'd like to believe like if you, if you saw me get spit on or I saw you get spit on, we'd go and like kick ass, right? Like that's just unacceptable, right? As human beings. But the truth is 
there's a lot of bystanders. And you saw, I'm sure, many videos of older Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders being beaten up in public with people watching time and time again over the last year and a half. And I'll hear people say, oh my gosh, Jeff, it's so, this is such a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's just that there's more opportunities for this to happen. Um, And secondly, if you look at history, in times of conflict, global conflict, in particular global tension, your, your rhetoric around the world has an effect on people locally. And words matter. Um, you know, I'm not saying words matter, actually matter too, but words do actually have an equation. And, you know, when you have the previous, you know, US president talking about, you know, the Kung flu or the China virus, uh, that has ramifications. And so to be told to go back to where I came from, not being California, last March in front of people who then allowed for that to happen, um, said a lot to me and then gave me really some serious introspection for the next few months on what I would do. I made a decision there. I would do something. I just know how, right? So that was, that was a real important turning point for me. And, um, you know, I certainly wonder, um, you know, about millions of other people who've had to make this stand, make this decision. And the blessing of the pandemic is it's forced people to really face um, what are they really going to do for the world? Because, Life is so, so short and precious. You know, in the U.S., over 650,000 people are gone, right? Um, you think, just for perspective, Chrissy, Washington, D.C. is a capital, has 690,000 people. So I want you to imagine the entire city of Washington just gone. That's essentially what this is. And, you know, we're fighting a war, a very different one. And unfortunately, it's a little uncivil as well here in the U.S. Um, and it's not just the war of the pandemic. It's also the war against ourselves. Um, you know, the war against other groups and frankly, this war between people who want to perpetuate, um, you know, systemic racism and groups that want to fight it. And Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have been trying to embrace this more. And I think that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for sharing that story. I know we briefly touched on it in our previous conversation, but I didn't know that, you know, the just, I can't imagine like being in the middle of like, a group of people being around you and that happening and just them looking at you and going on with their lives. I think that would really change the way you look at yourself, the way you look at the way you interact with the world as well. And I'm glad that you took the route of, you know what, this is the time to make that change and I'm going to start speaking up. Yeah, you know, accountability starts with us. You know, that was a view I had. And I think I would be a hypocrite to say that, Yeah. Uh, so I need to be, I need to acknowledge I should have done much more in my life, mm-hmm. right? especially, you know, supporting, helping, championing other communities of color, but particularly women in that space, right? And as a man, I fully acknowledge that I have unique advantages that right or wrong are definitely true, in, at least in American culture. And so whenever I see things happen now, I have to say something. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this privilege, right? So, you know, three weeks ago, so this was, I guess, in July. You know, I think I mentioned to you that I had, um, you know, two people go up to me, same thing, like I'm coming out of a work meeting. So, you know, there's, I'm wearing work clothes and I'm coming back out. I highlight that because it's not like, I'm, it's not like I'm blending in, right? I'm obviously in some sort of work engagement and I'm walking back and two guys go up to me and they're like, Hey Buddha, um, can we rub your belly for the block? And it's middle of the day. <laughs> And so maybe they had a couple of drinks, but again, not the first time I've been asked this. So I already have an answer, which is, you know, listen, um, while you might think it's a good idea, 
it's a really not a good one because I'm not a genie. I don't make wishes. And so that's the only way I can deflect those answers. But can you imagine if I was a woman to say that, how much more worse that situation could be? How much more potential peril there could be? Um, and so that's why I think it's so important for men in particular to sort of, you know, embrace um, their role in, um, you know, fighting these issues specifically, because, you know, in the U.S., it's been noted, right, um, the civic group Stop API Hate has acknowledged and, and you know, self-reported cases have found two-thirds of these cases of, of acts of hate, acts of violence, acts of discrimination, acts of xenophobia um, are attributed against women. Mm-hmm. So that number is low, though, because of English language barriers, because of cultural things, and frankly, just shame. And so we have to be doing so much more. It's on a human level. And this is, Chrissy, this was four blocks from my house. Yeah. So this isn't like, this is four blocks from my house from one of the more cosmopolitan places in the United States, right? And you expect that diversity would would have resolved that. In theory, in (laughs) theory. And the same thing, people saw it and looked around. It was the same exact thing, um, which was interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And some of the, some of the scapegoating or some of the blatant racism, I mean, just, um, you know, just in early August, right? I I don't know if you saw, but um, in sort of the sports space, right? So there are two recent incidents. The first Um, Juventus um, women's soccer club, the football club, you know, Juventus is, you know, one of the three most important teams in Europe, right? Or three most important teams in in Italy. And um, they pushed out, you know, a joking meme of a person putting a cone on their head, like a rice hat Mm -hmm. and slanting their eyes. And then a couple of days later, a Green Bay Packers player um, made a comment that he loved not wearing masks because then, you know, you can see your eyes and mouth. And so it wasn't as chinky. This is only a couple of days ago in August. Yeah. So I want you to think about that. Like when people say, oh, this like hate thing is like overblown, Jeff, what are you talking about? Like those comments and those things are so casual mm-hmm. and the condemnation is like mute or misunderstood. Like, I don't think people understand just the meaning of those words and phrases. Every Asian American, and I'm sure you've experienced this in Canada, has experienced something like that. Everyone, they all know what that means, which is that feeling that you do not belong here, that you don't deserve to be here, and that you you make our country worse, right? There is that sentiment, right? And history definitely dictates some of this. And that's from you know, respected sports athletes, right? People that kids look up to. And when you think about racism, broadly speaking, these are issues that are not, you know, you're not just born racist, right? Racism is a social construct. It's taught. It's taught, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the story I'll tell you at at school, like when people ask me, hey, what what was the first time you experienced racism? Because I get this question a lot and it's important we talk about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fifth grade, right? Um, I decided um, I was going to run for student class president. And um, I asked the boy for his vote, as you do, right, in politics. And he's like, you know, like, I don't think anyone's going to vote for you because everybody knows, like, your people eat dog. I was like, what? I have a dog. Why would I eat my dog? My dog is great. 
Why would I do that? I, it was so confusing to me. And then when I came back from, from lunch, lunch, right? So basketball, you're coming back, right? All sweaty, typical little boy. And I remember going back to my little desk and there was a tape picture of me eating a dog uh, that was drawn on there. And um, just the level, like that was really the first time, first time that I realized that I was not equal, right? Like really, truly not equal. And I think it affected the way I looked at the world for a little while, right? But it was a reminder to me that um, we, again, have a responsibility, especially when you're in power or in influence or a place of influence, you got to think about that little boy or girl, right? Who's experiencing that, like, as a potential role model, you need to think about what you can do better. So to see those comments and visuals on social media that were distributed around, um, that was just a reminder to me of how, just how far we've come. You know, even though people are being beaten up in the streets, even though you have seniors who are too scared to go outside, even though you have women that are harassed at work daily, right? Even if you have, um, you know, people like my parents who get told they're the reason why the virus is here. Yeah. These are things that are quite just crushing, right? And it makes you like wonder, like, why are we, like, what can you do to break through? And the conversation you and I are having a part of that. Right. And hopefully the listeners here are thinking about, hey, did you know, did I do some racist stuff or like, am I being a good supporter or co-conspirator ally, if you will, for mm-hmm. folks who come from a different place in the world or a different place of standing? Yeah. What kind of privilege can I sort of support? Right. Yeah. These are things I want people to think about, because, again, during the pandemic, we all realize that nothing is forever and also that life is very uncertain and we yeah. should really live the life we need to live. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Um, life is full of uncertainty and pandemic definitely showcases that you can't really plan for tomorrow, yeah. you can't plan for a month from now, yeah. but you can plan for today. And that's how you interact with the person you're interacting with, right? And the message that you're putting out there. Yeah. And for you, based on your experience, you, are, you, you, you did have an experience working with, you know, policymakers, companies, startup companies tech companies and as a parent as well but based on those experiences what do you think can companies policymakers, and parents do to train people oh my gosh no pressure right Um, yeah so okay so what government should do i'll start with government and then we'll talk about companies and then we'll talk about everyday people right yeah so so governments first off um, you know, I just recently had a piece um, in Political Magazine um, that talk about what um, what government should do. And I um, sort of list some steps that the Biden administration and the United States Congress can implement. I'm sure I'm sure, uh, you know, the Canadian provinces and uh, Parliament in Ottawa could also do these things as well. Yeah. But uh, just using from the context I know here, um, you know, I think when you're thinking about hate, um, fundamentally, uh, what what policymakers have done here is try to allocate money to get better data, right? So we talked about it earlier a little bit, but basically the reason why Asian Americans are seen as a model minority is because the data is pushed together um, that says that uh, they, uh, you know, have better um, economic prospects, right? That they have higher college graduation rates, these sort of factors. And as a whole number, right, 7 million, um, you know, sorry, 7% of the U.S. So if you look at it purely as 7% of the U.S., that's probably accurate. However, this is why it's important. 
right, is that this is the most diverse group uh, within a larger subset. Uh, you know, 50 uh, nationalities, 100 languages about. So it's a it's very diverse and it's also the fastest growing in the United States. So it's like important to highlight that it's just constantly changing and that it comes through multiple waves, right? So we've had Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans here since the 19th century, right? Um, so you have some Asian Americans that have been here longer than most European Americans. So think about that, like just from a longevity perspective, you gotta imagine their experience a little different uh, and maybe their access to means or education or frankly land is probably different than let's say my family, right? Who came in 1981 or Hmong Americans who came in 78, 79, right? Or Lao Americans, right? Or Burmese Americans. So your starting points are so different. So of course your outcomes initially will be different, right? And again, the American dream is not for your parents, it's for you. And so that generational transition takes time. Um, so if you dig in the data, and this is where policymakers have initially started, this is bare, bare minimum, right? So they've started by saying, okay, um, we need more, better data. And um, I'll give you an example. If you look at Lao Americans, Vietnamese Americans, um, they have um, lower college and high school graduation rates um, than your average, um, let's say white American, okay? Um, they have lower access to healthcare. They have higher rates and instances of experiences in the criminal justice system. And they have a lower life expectancy. So, and these numbers are on par or worse than other groups that you probably picture as like traditionally vulnerable or historically marginalized or whatever phrase you want to use there. So just acknowledging that Asians are a minority that isn't some magical unicorn is important, right? Data drives that. So that, that's like the initial thing and the Biden administration and Congress have acknowledged that. Other states in our system have acknowledged that too. California, uh, you know, put $156 million investing in Asian American communities. You know, California has about 16% of, of the US API community, but they also had, they also had a huge portion. They had 40% of the hate crimes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so think about that. The most diverse state in the country with the longest history with Asian Americans had the highest instances for hate uh, and hate crime, you know, according to the California Attorney General, went up 107 percent for Asian groups. 107 percent. It's so ironic. It's insane. <laughs> it's a shocking thing, given how cosmopolitan California is. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the reality is that that isn't just the Asians. Right. If you look at groups as a whole, it's probably up 30 percent. So 30% across the board, that's even crazier if you think about a big picture. So the data part's important, right? And then there are three groups that the federal administration needs to focus on, right? Which is seniors, women, small businesses. And, you know, I, we, we talked about women earlier. I mean, they have, they're much more susceptible to attacks and other issues. We talked about seniors, right? We have seniors basically sheltering in place or sheltering in fear and have some of the highest rates of death by suicide. Uh, and you gotta imagine the, the isolation probably is gonna help their mental well-being. It's probably worse, right, during this crisis. So as the United States was opening up sort of pre-Delta, um, you had a lot of folks who were really scared of the two things, which was the pandemic, 
the actual virus and then the hate virus, right? <laughs> that they were being targeted. So they had real issues. And then you also had small businesses here that you know got federal money to like restart their businesses, thankfully. But then what happened was as the country was opening up in the summer, there was this wave of vandalism for Asian businesses, Asian restaurants, Asian dry cleaners, Asian um, you know, florists or Asian nail salons. So all the money that they were trying to invest in was just going to fixing broken windows and graffiti because of hate. So the government really needs to think about that. Um, you know, in California, right, they invested, um, you know, a number of um, beautification programs into local, local sort of Chinatowns, little Koreas, little Manilas, right? Japan towns. I think that's a good start. Those are a couple things the government should be doing. And frankly, giving seniors um, opportunities to have self-defense, right? I mean, whatever civic programming, you need to push the money down to community groups who actually know these groups, including investments in ethnic media, because, you know, um, in Asian American Pacific Islander communities, they, they have a lower English language proficiency. So if you want to get them information, if you want to get them access to government services, you have to be able to get it in language, you know, with people that are trusted. Those things are super important. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of one part of it. Um, you know, last thing I'll say, and this is related to COVID-19, but, you know, you got schools opening up here in the fall. Um, there's going to be some Asian kids that don't go to school because of bullying. Yeah. That's something that needs to be addressed. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a huge challenge. So imagine you have kids at home and then your seniors are too scared to go out. Who takes care of them? You know, generally the, the women. Right. You know, it's, it's so they're under tremendous pressure. And then how do you get them back in the economy? if they have these obligations, right? Because for whatever reason, that's a setup. And that's really hard. So there's some real systemic economic pressures. There's some historical cultural pressures. And then there's some values challenges, right? So that's some, a few things that government should be doing. You know, um, I think we're a long way away from that. But I think, you know, there's potential steps for, at least in the United States, where there's opportunities. And other U.S. states watch for them to invest money in it, you know, in our federal system. Um, you know, on businesses, uh, you know, business has a very important role in this because, you know, the vast majority of instances of discrimination or xenophobia or racism for women particularly have come from work, the workplace, even in the digital world, which is sort of shocking. And so, like, you think about, you know, you think about companies and what are they thinking about? They're thinking about profit and they're thinking about value to shareholders, right? Yeah. And one of the most important things is having a pipeline of talent that's invested in uh, that is diverse. And I don't mean that in a like checkbox tokenism way. I mean that more in the perspective of building the best teams and building the best teams, meaning the, you have the most unique skill sets um, available to you and that complement one another. So the way I would think of it, think of it from a, a hockey analogy, right? you wouldn't just hire all goalkeepers, right? Goaltenders, you wouldn't do that. You would hire some centers and right wings and defense people, right? You would, you would build a team. And then you would build a team with a strong bench of people so that they could be interchangeable, but with different skills, yeah. right? Based on the needs, right? You need them for penalty killing, right? Versus a power play, right? Forgive the Canadian analogies, but you get my drift. Yeah. And yeah. so like, it's so important right? But imagine what these companies do, which is they say, oh, I can't hire someone that's diverse. It's hard to find them. 
Well, that's because they're talking to the same people they've always known who went to the same schools that they did with the same age and peer groups that they grew up with or have a connection to or have an economic connection to, right? We really had to think broader. I mean, imagine at least in the US context, right? 52% of the United States is women. Like, why would you not be, like, why would you not be courting 52% of the workforce? It's shocking to me. But some companies are just convinced, especially in tech, as you know, yeah. they're just, you know, they're focused on the 48%. But here's the thing. If you're trying to draft the best player on the board, there's a 50-50 chance it's not in the pool you're looking at. So if you're looking at just that one pool, how do you expect to be successful? So, you know, I tell an analogy I use, Chrissy, with companies who talk to me about these issues. Um, I tell them my examples in cybersecurity. Um, you know, you have uh, obviously more creative bad guys in the space. Generally, I'll say it's men, uh, mostly, that are able to hack systems. And obviously, there's ransomware and other issues. Um, imagine if you had a defense system that was just dudes um, from one universe, right? You probably lose every time. And so when I saw both in my life in tech, but also in government, was that um, the most talented defenders to this were people with the most interesting life experiences. They yeah. were people who, the way I would describe them would be people who got into trouble as kids. They were the kid that was like bored all the time. <laughs> they were the ones who like took things apart and put it together. Yeah. They probably didn't go to a fancy school. They got into a lot of trouble. They probably got um, some sort of education informal, informal, a little. Those are the best people I've ever seen take on hackers and bad guys. The best. Not the Ivy League kids who grew up in the Upper West Side in New York, right? Those were less effective. So it says to me that diversity isn't just, you know, do we have one of these and one of those? It's really about the diversity of, of the life enriching moments that matter. And you need to capture as many of those as possible, right? That's, so that's one thing companies should be doing is sort of really revamping, revisiting one's pipelines and recruitment yeah. pipelines. Because let's just say, even if you do recruit someone that's a unicorn and awesome, if it doesn't have an environment that's supportive, these people will just go yeah. because that's what the workforce is. So you could just get a 10% raise and go to Amazon yeah. or Shopify in this case, right? You can go to wherever, right? That's just the marketplace. So really building that loyalty is, is an investment beyond money. It's an investment that goes into a culture that is representative and is sincere in really embracing different cultures. So, you know, in the Asian American space, right? Um, you know, I tell companies to have, um, you know, reading sessions or even, you know, a, a screening. And I tell every company to, if you can, you should screen, you know, PBS or public, you know, public broadcast you know, had a documentary on Asian Americans that was really fascinating. And I wish every company had that because if you have that context, then you understand your workforce better, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly in tech where there are more Asian Americans, but very few in leadership roles. They're mainly, you know, mid-managers and product or engineering. And there's a bamboo ceiling. They're not ever making it there. And so there needs to be more investment in understanding different leadership styles, right? Some of it's cultural, I right, we talked about. Um, those are sort of two very clear examples that businesses should do. One thing I will highlight, well, two other things that I think are notable um, before we talk about sort of everyday folks. One, one more to add would be, you know, mandatory anti-racism training, particularly racism training, anti-racism training that focuses on 
bystanders, sort of like, you know, when I got spit on or told to be rubbed, right? It was, the issue was bystanders watching because they don't know what to do. And so Asian Americans advancing justice and an organization called Hollow Back do some pretty good trainings. I tell every company I talk to to enlist them to do real training, real meaningful ones, action-oriented ones. And then the other thing is, you know, there's this rise in DEI, blah, 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 right? If you're on one of these DEI councils, you should pay them. You should pay them because it's real work and it's not easy. And also the company should align their diversity goals to their bottom line. So they should link their bonuses to that. If you link the bonus to the diversity metrics, I think you'd have a better opportunity for success. Those are a couple of things the businesses should do. And then at the human, like everyday level, number one, talk to someone to share their story. Like it doesn't have to be an Asian person, but just any story. Yeah. We don't talk about those things. We don't talk about our families in the same way. I, I wish we did. Maybe that's the virus, maybe it's other things. But it's just so important to let people just sort of open up to like the challenges and trials and tribulations. It's so important and it gives you a better sense of who you're actually talking to. Um, and the hardest conversations are the ones, this is the second thing, talking about these racism issues. The hardest conversation is the one with people that you love, but you have a very different worldview. Yeah. You've got to have those conversations. Those are harder than talking to strangers, but it has to, has to happen. Because change, change has to start sort of like locally, and I would say within your heart, right? So those are things that you could do. L last thing I'll say, um, you know, in terms of what everyday people could do, you know, mentorship, sponsorship, right? Like if there's, you know, an up and coming person, like mentoring them is giving them, you know, feedback and perspective. Sponsorship is like actively pushing and championing, you know, in different quarters, even more important in the global economy. I think everyone has that opportunity, right? We need to do a better job doing that at an everyday level. Yeah, no, I love it. All of it. Oh my God. I'm like, I think those are definitely the things that our listeners should really take into account. Like, I definitely agree that everything starts in the family because if you really think about it, let's say if I, let's say I have a white family and my kid does something in school, it's because he probably, or she probably sees their parents uh, doing the same thing outside where, or talking about it, where it's like, yeah, Asian kids are blah, blah, blah. Or like, yeah, that's fine. They, they'll, they'll be fine. They won't, they won't complain. They, they'll be okay. Right. But then when it starts in the family where they're like, no, dad, that's wrong. We should talk about it. We shouldn't say that. I, I feel like that's where parents would start thinking about, oh, wow, my kid is now lecturing me. Where is this coming from? Let me take a step back and just reassess how I'm treating people based, is it based on how they look or is it based on their performance at work, right? And so, yeah, I agree. I feel like diversity has its, you know, um, has its symptoms of like mm -hmm. causing certain problems, but these problems would also help solve other problems. So it's us being proactive and really acting on those small um, things that bother us that we're questioning where we're like, what did we do wrong that made them say and act this way towards us, right? And I even, like both my parents are working in the retail industry, right? So they do encounter these interactions quite often. And for them to lift, you know, just drop everything 
from I'm from the Philippines, so they dropped everything there. Um, my dad still has a business, but then it just feels different seeing them in the scope where they're they feel, they feel like they need more help from us because they feel less here than they were back in the Philippines. Like they're a different person when we actually go back and they feel more confident. But here they feel like I have to act a certain way to belong, right? I have to adjust myself and I have to be okay with everything. You have to compromise. Exactly. Yeah. Versus celebrating, you know, this is who I am and I'm I feel that I'm being celebrated. And I yeah. think more and more companies are slowly, I think slowly trying to integrate that into their culture. Um, it does take time and more people have to participate, meaning actually act on it, not just say it. Yeah. Um, for the change to actually make that difference. So um, I I'm really glad that you've you know elaborated on those steps and like things that you thought was really useful or you you thought based on your experience would really help people who are encountering these difficulties in their interactions. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, I mean, if you have the opportunity, if the listeners here have an opportunity to support a small business that's dealt with these issues, I think it's really timely. So if you have a chance to go to a restaurant or dry cleaner, wherever, yeah. um, I do think you can make a tremendous difference. It's, this is sort of voting by your feet, you know? Yeah. I think it's important right now. Exactly. And one thing that I wanted to ask you was you mentioned it wasn't really until last year that you fully celebrated yourself as you sure. know, I'm an Asian American. I'm proud of <laughs> Begrudgingly. Begrudgingly is probably what I would say. Yeah. I, I would have told you, I, I would have told you, um, you know, embracing that Asian heritage was the last thing I wanted to do. The second to last thing, I mean, speaking to the media is pretty brutal, yeah. but th those two things are just such a hard, just culturally so tough, especially when you're doing everything to blend in. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for me, that was best captured. Um, you know, it wasn't just me trying to resolve this was also my parents too. Yeah. So, um, you know, the end of March, uh, you might recall there were three places that had the worst COVID-19 outbreaks on earth. One was in Italy, two was in New York City, and three was in southern Georgia, where my parents free-range chicken farm is. Mm -hmm. And they had a huge outbreak caused by basically a giant funeral that people went to. And, you know, they knew people that were affected and had these issues. And after that experience, you know, they'd lived there 20 years. But the people they were friends with, the people they spent time with, the people they did business with, um, slowly sort of didn't want to spend time with them or didn't want to engage with them. And it wasn't until, you know, August when I was on the phone with them, they were sort of telling me that, you know, they were told that they were the reason why the virus was in, in you know, the country. That was just, I mean, because here's the thing, even though my parents the whole time were trying to convince me that we could never be American enough, just like, you know, little 10 year old Jeff. Yeah. They were trying to believe it still. Right. And then they realized again that they would never be accepted yeah. and i just couldn't ex i just couldn't accept that outcome right so that's what inspired me to do writing and that's when i wrote a piece in the local paper about yeah. you know the contributions of immigrants to this country um you know in three areas right in the small businesses and the, the um you know the the essential workers right the second was you know the frontline nurses and uh, medical supporters, particularly in rural communities, right? And not in many parts of the United States, 
many of the rural doctors come from other countries mm-hmm. to fill the need because no one wants to go there for whatever reason. And then the third piece was the research and development for the vaccine was largely on the backs of a lot of immigrants, right? Um, So that's just something to acknowledge. And it was sort of a backhanded, you know, it was sort of an indirect way of criticizing these people that um, told my family that they weren't a part of this place, right? That they were the fault for these things. And two things happened. The first is it was pretty well read, even though it's a small paper. And the second thing is that, um, you know, some of these critics of my parents or sort of um, these um, folks who were blaming them apologized. And that was when I realized that when you have a voice and you amplify it and you speak with fact and passion and reason, but also thoughtfulness and, and, and sort of respect, yeah. it couldn't really make a difference. It could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what inspired me to continue speaking because I hope that, you know, people listening to this conversation, yeah. it sparks something, right? For sure. And I hope that, you know, we can sort of make a difference sort of one household by one household, right? Because I think that's what it will take on, you know, right or wrong, that's what people take. Yeah, for sure. It has to start with, it has to start small. Um, and it's a domino effect that impacts really a chain of events, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's happening. I, I hear it from my friends who start speaking up about their own experiences. It's painful, even just talking about it one-on-one. It's painful to even bring it up because it's something that's been buried in there for such a long time, right? So I'm glad that people start speaking up about it. And like for you, when your parents mentioned about their experience, what was, how was that conversation? How did you respond to it? You know, with silence, it- first because you know in asian cultures it's about what's unsaid yeah but you can you can you can feel it there there was a sense of i think just loss yeah i think they hadn't felt and i felt as their eldest son a responsibility to say something because i was thinking gosh if these folks if my parents who've been there 20 years were treated that way what do you think someone brand new to our country would be like what experience would they have Mm -hmm. you know Mm-hmm. they didn't have the benefit yeah. and even though they had been there 20 years they didn't get the benefit either and so you know as somebody who has had the privilege to yeah. work in places of power right and places of opportunity and places of wonder you have to use that experience yeah. right you have to you have to because if you don't maybe nobody will yeah and that's that was hard that was a hard lesson because in many ways, I'd love to not do this stuff, right? <laughs> but there's too much responsibility. And again, if it's not my parents, it's someone else's parents. Yeah, for sure. So we, we have to be doing this more. We have to be speaking up more. And again, we have to go against the things we were conditioned on. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's even more critical. Because, because again, if we all stay silent, then we're, we're, we're blessing this to happen. Yeah. And it's not acceptable. And it's not just to what happens with Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, but to other communities of color, right? If you see something, you should say something, right? Yeah. And there's ways to say it where you don't escalate into a bloodbath, right? Yeah. But the, but if you don't say something and if you don't shame it, um, then we accept it. And that's not, I'm not willing to live in a world where that's acceptable. Yeah. And it goes back to your experience too, for the bystander, right? Where now you can, you've seen both, sides right you've seen it happen and you've seen it happen to you and you've seen it happen to you where other people are just watching 
and you're like this is not gonna be me anymore and that's great now, yeah 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 it's not gonna be me anymore but also I hope it doesn't happen to anybody, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We have to find a way to teleport ourselves into those moments because yes. um, that stuff shakes you. It sort of it can it can change you, and I don't think we should, as as human beings, lose that essence of who we are. You know, we yeah. should accept we should accept who we are, so then we can make sure that other people accept us for who we are, right? But it starts with us. It starts internally, yes, for sure. And what will you tell to other Asian Americans who are going through something or going through a struggle or a conflict of who they are and who they want to be because of this, I guess, stereotype or this box that they're placed at. Yeah. Um, first, I would say they're not, just to tell them that they're not alone. There's millions yeah. of us who have gone back and forth, right? Feeling like you live multiple lives. That's yeah. totally natural, right? That you feel like you walk in multiple worlds. It's perfectly reasonable given how we were raised. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is sort of to have faith that um, what you do, what you say, and why you say what you say matters, right? So if you say something, it's going to break the social mold, mm -hmm. and that's important. So like you can empower yourself pretty quickly in ways to sort of change the status quo around you. And again, that starts with family and that starts with your friends who you might love them. You might be close to them, but they also might say horrible things from time to time. Like you have to correct that quickly. And right or wrong, there's no escaping your heritage. You can try. Eventually, it catches you, and that's what happened with me. And I'm sure that's what happened. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of heritage, um, what now with your recent realization? Um, what did you find that you know what? This is what I'm proud about. Me being that means what's or me being Asian what about it well I think I think the proudest thing is more that you know I'm proud of being the son of um, my parents right mm -hmm. so that that I think first because even if I want to connect to sort of these big identities yeah at the end of the day I want to know that my parents sacrifices here were being used well yeah I, i'd like to think that yeah and so that's what i think about i think about um am i doing what i need to be doing because i've been afforded this opportunity am i wasting it or am i using it and you know i spent 37 years wasting it in some ways right too scared to use it and now i'm ready to to do more but um to do more doesn't mean to do more alone yeah, you mean we need to do more to get others like yourself and others out there mm -hmm. to talk about these issues. And I think that will make us more proud of who we are is knowing that who we are is also bringing along yes. many others. Yes. That yes. is the thing I could be very proud of at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And these are definitely the stories that I, I like hearing and I love to share because it's, it's human, right? It, it's something that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis and sometimes we forget to talk about it, but it's important. It matters because it affects the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world and the, the way we relate to other people, right? And so last question, Jeff, and something that I always ask my guest speakers is, what is your love message to yourself? <laughs> my love message to myself is that there's 24 hours in a day yes. um, and you're not gonna do it all in one day. 
Like we need to think long game, right? This is more, more of a ultra marathon than it is a sprint, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you have to give yourself some grace um, and, you know, be well-rounded in that, right? So I try to dedicate time to write, write on the issues and speak about the issues, but I also try to have family time and I also try to go for a run, right? Because, you know, so much of what we do is can happen when we cultivate and acknowledge, you know, our, um, you know, the things that make us us isn't just the things we do. It's also who we are and who we spend our time with. Yeah. That's really important. I love that. And where can we find you, Jeff? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Jeffrey D. Lee, and I hope it'll be in the notes here. Um, you can find me there. Um, and hopefully some of the writing I found most recently in Political Magazine, which I think you'll find uh, great. And you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, but I appreciate you making the time to talk and share my story and, you know, give me the opportunity to reflect on things I hadn't really thought about before. So, you know, thank you for that opportunity. And I'm so, I'm so thankful we, we got able, we were able to talk and hopefully we're going to make a difference and, you know, you know, answering uh, some questions that many of the readers and listeners have been thinking about. Yeah, for sure. And I think we've definitely ticked on a lot of boxes on, you know, these are the topics that truly matter and we should bring up and talk about. I'm sure there's more, things to dig into, <laughs> but we are touching on surface level, very important matters that really, you know, it's a start of the conversation that really is going to make that difference. So I hope, I hope so. Well, th- I appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem, Jeff. I'm so grateful for your presence and hopefully we'll catch you another time. Uh, you just let me know. I'll be there. Thanks so much. <laughs> awesome. No problem. All right. And here's to hoping that your day is filled with peace, joy, and love. Keep speaking your truth and manifesting your dreams and always remember to nurture healthy relating. You may be told that you're not that special, but hey, you matter because you are unique. You are put in this earth as an energy container and it's time to open yourself up and share what you've got. I am so rooting for you and hope to have you here again at Moments with Christy.